Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, May 10th, we're studying Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. As Stephen begins his defense and proclamation before the Sanhedrin, he reminds them of the faithfulness of God to Abraham and his descendants, even when Joseph's brothers were jealous and sold their brother into slavery. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Sam Belts. Pastor Belts serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. Pastor Belts, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, Tim. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. Let's talk context. We get the beginning of Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin today. What should we know about the book of Acts? What's been happening leading up to this point to look at this text today? I think we could fill several episodes with all the pretext and context of Acts chapter 7. The short version is Stephen is one of the uh, men that has been chosen by the apostles to uh, help with the labors in the early church, as we're familiar with if we've been reading through Acts. We know that the church has uh, grown after Pentecost, the preaching of the apostles, in particular Peter, Uh, Many miracles have been done. There's been great proclamation. The Holy Spirit has worked mightily in and among the people of Israel in Jerusalem in particular. That's a very important point to remember about the first few chapters of Acts, is that the majority of the evangelistic work of God through the Spirit and the preaching of the apostles is happening in and around Jerusalem for the people of Israel. It's happening in the temple, which is, of course, one of the major issues of conflict between uh, the continued uh, the, con- the continued conflict between the Jewish leaders that are in place, most likely men who are all uh, indicted into the death of Jesus himself, and now continue to be indicted into the persecution of the early church. Uh, you know, they don't want the name of Jesus to be preached and proclaimed. This is the continual issue that they bring before and the accusation they bring before the people and the council when they drag the apostles in repeatedly. And we'll see this is the, of course, accusation or one of the accusations, not the main accusation that they bring uh, in front of Stephen a little bit later after he's done giving his speech, um, or at least, or maybe they've already accused him of this, that he's making, uh, he's making uh, Moses, he's making, uh, yeah, he's changing the customs of Moses, right? This is their main accusation uh, in in chapter six. It doesn't come afterwards. They just pick up the stones afterwards. But, uh, you know, the context is... um, uh, really close, really uh, similar to the trial and persecution of Jesus has a lot of overlap to the to the trial and persecution of Jesus. They have uh, accused Stephen of things uh, that the Hebrew leaders do that he has not done, uh, even though uh, he is accused of changing the customs of Moses. He is probably not changing the customs of Moses. He's probably simply proclaiming them fulfilled and moot now in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ and especially his resurrection which is, of course, the main issue, right? The preaching and the proclamation of Jesus is the main issue. Um, And so we see that, you know, bubbling up here uh, as Stephen is starting to respond in his speech or his sermon, if you want to call it that. Um, He begins with the story of salvation that God invoked in the man Abraham. uh, And he's doing this very strategically. But the context is, 
He is working in Jerusalem. He's one of the men that the apostles have chosen to help with the ministrations to the church, specifically with the uh, care for the needy, the widows and the orphans, the uh, uh, distribution of the common good for the church in Jerusalem. Uh, as we learn, the, the church has all things in common. A significant part of that were uh, the common goods, the common treasury, the common foodstuffs. Uh, that the church seemed to be supportive of widows and orphans in particular, but then uh, various other persons within the boundaries of the church. And so Stephen has been somebody that's been chosen by the apostles through prayer and meditation uh, to do this. And now uh, we learn uh, in chapter 6-2 that he's also very well catechized. He most likely has um, some interaction more formally with the apostolic teaching uh, he has some, definitely has some connection to the work of Jesus and the work of the apostles as a bystander or as some sort of very closely connected uh, disciple, anyway, uh, to the apostles, a bystander to the apostles, not a bystander to the, to the disciples, but he's a mm -hmm. disciple, bystander to the apostles. Um, probably was, uh, I, I kind of speculate that he was in the discussion probably to be somebody that uh, took the place of Judas. Uh, it didn't come down to him, though, right? It, it came down to two other guys. And Matthias was chosen, but uh, uh, he definitely has a wealth of knowledge. He knows the Old Testament really well. He's able to argue. This is one of the most frustrating things about Stephen. Uh, for the Jewish leaders, they complain about how much he argues with them. He is his arguments are insurmountable. He's very pre-Pauline, right? If there's a mm. really uh, there's uh, I don't know if it's irony, but there's definitely some poetic beauty to the fact that Stephen has this sort of pre-Pauline personality and his death, as we'll you know, foreshadow, yeah. is overseen and approved by the man who would, who would be Paul, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of really interesting uh, connections here in this text. I really do love Stephen's speech. I love all the context around it. I could talk about it for a long time. We're actually <laughs> in a study at St. John Oskaloosa. If anybody's listening to this in the Iowa area, you should come to St. John Oskaloosa and come to our, our Sunday morning study. We're actually looking at Acts right now. We've been looking at it for about a year, and we're only in Acts chapter nine. So, <laughs> wow, <laughs> we've got a long time to go. We got a lot of Acts to study left. What so. time is Bible study at St. John in Oskaloosa? Bible study starts at ten fifteen. You should all come. Very good, very good. One one thing about you you mentioned you know Stephen's speech, Stephen's sermon. I'm not sure that we need to nail it down precisely, but but what is he doing here? I mean, I, I have often referred to Peter's sermons at various points up to this point. What what's he doing here? Is it a defense? Is it a sermon? Is is it a speech? How might we classify it? Yeah, it's it's all those things. Okay. Right? It, you know, when this is definite, this is so in, in the most simple way to describe the entirety of what Stephen says, he proclaims the whole salvation history of God, beginning with Abraham and how it finally is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then he implicates the Hebrew leaders again in the death of Jesus, right? So all of this functions as uh, this proclamatory speech act and then an accusatory speech act uh, by Stephen to the Jewish leaders, right? So uh, so, and the, the audience is definitely a key, right? Uh, Stephen is not preaching to the disciples of Jesus mm -hmm. in a house setting, right? Uh, he's not trying to usurp an apostolic position, uh, so that is an important thing to understand, right. but he is doing uh, what it seems like he was called on to do and what, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit supplied to him in this time, 
which we would hope that we all have the courage to do, but maybe we would we should pray all the more that the Holy Spirit might give us this utterance that in the midst of persecution in the face of death, that we would proclaim boldly and well the work of God in time and in specifically Jesus Christ. Um, so that's really what I, what you see going on here. This is I would I definitely classify this as a sermon if we're talking about it as a modern day sort of modern day interpreters of this text. I think talking about it as a speech. Uh, it's too antiseptic. I think people probably try to do this to not confuse the fact that Stephen wasn't a, uh, he wasn't an apostle, so he didn't have the office of preaching. I get that, right? I really, really do get that. But I think the situational uh, dynamics of this text point out that what Stephen is definitely doing is sermonic. It is proclamatory. It is not necessarily, the audience is not necessarily Christians, right? These are not, this is not in a church. This is not in a worship setting. This is in a, uh, this is literally in a legal setting. Uh, this is to a group of non-believers. Uh, this is what we would hope, uh, you know, uh, this is what we would hope, uh, what Moses hoped for when the Spirit poured out over the mm-hmm. elders to other people. And, and the, you know, who was it? Uh, Joseph. Was it Joseph that wanted to go kill those guys, right? Tell them to shut up. Uh, you know, and Moses says, I wish all of God's people had the Spirit so that they would be proclaimers uh, and that they would uh, do these works, right? And, and you see this here now with Stephen, the fulfillment of what God promised and what God did back on Sinai. Uh, you do see it here with Stephen being able to proclaim, uh, I think, sermonically, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and not just the person and work of Jesus Christ, but again, God the Father's work to bring about salvation through the Abrahamic seed and the lengths to which he accomplished this finally culminating in Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. And then the accusation, of course, is that you, Hebrew leaders, are standing against God and his anointed. This is the main accusation of Peter, James, John, now Stephen, of the Hebrew leaders throughout almost all of their proclamation, when they are proclaiming in the synagogues and to the people of Israel and to the Jewish leaders, they always get around to that point, right? Uh, The stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone, the most quoted text uh, of the Old Testament in the New Testament, and mainly in the sermons of the apostles to the Hebrews, Mm -hmm. uh, when they are identifying the fact that they have rejected the Lord's anointed, that the stone has become the cornerstone, uh, the builders have rejected it. All these themes are wrapped, really wrapped up a lot here in, in uh, Stephen's speech. So, All right, well, let's, let's jump right in to what Stephen says. We're picking up at the beginning of Acts chapter 7. The high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. 
let's pause there. That takes us through verse eight of the text. Pastor Belts, I think you said that the Stephen is being pretty strategic here in the way that he organizes his sermon. He chooses to start with Abraham. He could have started with any place, I suppose. The specific accusations were blaspheming against Moses and God, and he'll certainly get to Moses. What's the strategic move that he makes by beginning with Abraham in particular? Yeah, so I think the strategic move that uh, that Stephen is using here uh, is to supersede Moses, right? Uh, these Hebrews, these these Jewish leaders, they're, of course, extremely focused on Moses, the law of Moses. We, we just came through the passion of Jesus and the resurrection. Um, all of the accusations of the Jewish leaders to Jesus are that he breaks the law, right? And Jesus, in some cases, is breaking the law of Moses, which is the big problem. He's working on the Sabbath. He doesn't deny working on the Sabbath, right? And the Gospel of John, he actually says, well, my father works on the Sabbath, so I'm working on the Sabbath. He doesn't deny that he has come to do the Father's work. Uh, what the, What's in denial is that Jesus is greater than Moses. That's the denial. And with Stephen, what he's actually doing here, I think, is, is actually quite excellent, which is, you know, Moses was great. But Moses isn't the end of the world. Uh, this actually starts more preeminently with Abraham. Uh, and so he's actually indicting here back on the Hebrews that while their accusations, and while it's a, it says this in, you know, cha- in uh, chapter 6, this is their false accusations, are that he's somehow corrupting the traditions of Moses. What, what Stephen is setting up is that the Hebrew leaders are now abandoning the promise that God made to Abraham. Uh, so this is uh, going to work both ways, right? Because we, we notice uh, the, the opening question uh, of the high priest is, are these things so, right? Are you, uh, you know, are you speaking against the holy place? Are you speaking against the law? Uh, are you uh, destroying the traditions of Moses, right? Are these things so? And these are all false accusations. I, I tend to think that there's probably actually a little bit of truth to these. Hmm. Uh, I think the accusation about the... Uh, the uh, speaking against the temple or speaking against the uh, the holy place. Uh, this probably has to do with the fact that the ch- early church proclaimed Jesus as greater than the temple. This is a significant proclamation uh, that comes out of the Passion Week, right? The tearing of the temple curtain in two, uh, you know, the earthquake, uh, you know, all these uh, issues on the holy place uh, and this sort of, uh, you know, however you want to interpret this, but this transfer uh, of the identification of holy things and holy places between the temple being destroyed, you know, all be, you know, sort of this foreshadowing of the later uh, destruction of the temple, but uh, also the promises of Jesus in the Gospel of John again about how he would, this temple would be torn down in three days and then raised, and you know, all this sort of uh, mocking that took place at Jesus's statements about that, you know. I think there's probably something to that accusation, even though their accusation is false, right? The accusation that he's speaking against the temple isn't right. He's just saying, Jesus is the temple, not this place, or something like that, right? Mm. And then, you know, talking about the customs of Moses, there's probably truth to this at some level, Mm. because the Hebrews are, uh, you know, very zealous for the law. We know this. They're zealous for cleanliness. They're zealous for the food laws. They believe that uh, this sort of zealotry is going to lead towards God at least being favorable to them and not having them be destroyed by a foreign nation again, even though Rome's occupying them. Um, So there's uh, probably something to this about the washings of the food, maybe not the food quite yet, but, you know, 
uh, Peter at Cornelius's house comes a little bit later, where there's sort of these open revelations about the Gentile inclusion and the ab- abolition of the food laws and these sort of things. But, you know, you can see this sort of stuff breaking through. Maybe they're doing a little bit more work on the Sabbath, right? Maybe they're maybe they're gathering on the Sabbath. Maybe they're eating a meal, a communal meal together on the on the Sabbath, which would make sense in light of the Passover and all these sorts of things in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Maybe they've instituted some new first day of the week type worship events, which are going to be problematic for the Jews, especially if this is taking place in or at the temple, uh, temple area. Um, you know, this is going to be blasphemy. Uh, it's not accurate, of course, the accusation that he's trying to undo the laws of Moses, because the proclamation is that Jesus undid the laws of Moses. I don't have to, right? Jesus is greater than the Sabbath. Uh, You know, uh, so now the Sabbath is for the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, So are these things so? This is the question. And Peter doesn't, or uh, Peter, Stephen doesn't answer the question, right? He moves straight into his own assertions, which is great. Uh, This is a really, really excellent rhetorical move on his part. Uh, This is something we should all learn from. Uh, If the questions are stupid and false, do not engage with them. Move straight on to your own assertions to get your point across uh, and act like these people don't know what they're talking about, which is exactly the way Stephen begins his proclamation. He is bold. He is full of the Holy Spirit. He is staring at them in their eyes. Uh, there's this great description. I don't know how we get this description from the Luke, from Luke, but uh, Luke has this description that Stephen is staring at these men who are accusing him of these things, and his face is shining like an angel or shining like the sun, depending on how you translate this. Um, which is this amazing description. Uh, uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, even though it's, you know, sort of, this is pregnant with uh, language of the Holy Spirit, language of Moses, right? You have all this language and this imagery uh, about, uh, you know, the, the Holy Spirit endowing Stephen with some sort of supernatural appearance in the presence of these accusers. Uh, and then he, full of the Holy Spirit, presumably, again, uh, he preaches and proclaims this word. Now, he starts with Abraham because Abraham is the man that God finally chose to bring about the reconciliation of the world and his promised Messiah. And the reason this is again, circling back to why Stephen chooses Abraham, because in the text of the scriptures, even though Israel forgot this, Abraham is greater than Moses. Hmm. Moses was great. There, there wasn't another prophet like Moses, right? We, we have to acknowledge this. This is what the scriptures say. But when it comes down to the patriarchy of Israel, Abraham is the supreme. He is the pinnacle. Uh, Paul uses, and Paul knows better than we do, uh, the supremacy of Abraham. Paul uses Abraham as the supreme in almost all of his texts. He rarely uses Moses as a supreme image of faithfulness, uh, even though he does. Uh, but it is Abraham most most dominantly, especially in Romans, uh, when when Paul is working with his images of a faithful man, a man who was credited by righteousness— uh, because of his faith, who heard the word of promise and believed God, and God credited to him as righteous. This is the, this is justification by grace through faith. This is uh, the primary image of faithfulness and life for the Hebrews. Uh, this is the one through whom God, uh, after the mess of uh, the Tower of Babel, chose uh, in his divine sovereignty. And he is to be looked to and, and to be the great guide of the faithfulness of Israel. And so the, the, this supersedes the care uh, of mm. not even the care of Moses's faith, but the care of the customs, right? Mm. That this is what they're focusing on: the customs of Moses, the traditions of Moses. Um, what, St- what I see Stephen doing here is saying, "How about 
the tradition of faithfulness Mm. that you guys don't seem to have any care for? How about the tradition of justification that you have no desire to maintain? Uh, how about the tradition of grace, of God's gracefulness? This is really what, uh, you know, this this extended section here where uh, Stephen goes into the detail about how God got into the dirty details of mm-hmm. Abraham's life, the dusty ground of Mesopotamia and Haran, right? Uh, how God m- manipulated the destiny of Abraham by word to bring about the progeneration later, as we will hear in, in your later segments, uh, of the Christ. Um, this is what we're learning about here. So there's a lot of different detail here uh, that is very important. And it, it again, it is it is Abraham that the promise seed comes through. And this this is a really a significant uh, event. Also, Moses does not have a hand in the hereditary lineage of mm. the Messiah. Yeah, he doesn't. It's through the tribe of Judah. Moses is not of the tribe of Judah. Uh, it, it is uh, not through anything Moses, uh, you know, not through any genetic consequence of Moses did the Messiah come about, right? This was, uh, Moses was God's servant. It was through, you know, Moses isn't named in any of the genealogies of the Christ in Luke and Matthew. It's Abraham, right? It is Abraham that that is the that is the first place that uh, Matthew goes in particular, right? Uh, it's it's uh, Abraham is listed in Luke's, but Luke goes all the way to Adam, uh, and that's great. But Moses isn't anywhere in there, which is exactly what Stephen is pointing out. Moses has a limited amount of authority in the story of salvation. He was, uh, as Paul would say later. Uh, or at least what what uh, what Moses did for Israel is Moses acted like a, a nanny, right? Like mm-hmm. a guardian. Right. And the law was given through Moses to, for that reason, right? It's like the rules on the chalkboard of the nanny room um, so that you can be taken care of, you little babies, while you, you know, while you figure out how to be adults. The issue for Israel is that they never figured out how to be adults. And this is what Stephen is still dealing with. And what I mean adults, I just don't mean, of course, by mannerism and intention and, and wisdom and knowledge, but uh, by growing up into the faithfulness that was uh, given and handed over to Israel by the progenitor and by the patriarch Abraham uh, and carried on through successive lineages, right? Uh, Moses is bypassed by Stephen, and rightly so. Uh, Moses is not, uh, you know, not involved other than as this sort of caretaking hmm. nanny for the story of salvation. A significant man, an important man. Uh, he did great work for the people of Israel on God's behalf. Lot, you know, I am not dis- discrediting him for his work and service to the gospel for the people of Israel. But we have to put him in his proper place, right? His proper place is not the cornerstone. His proper place is a, a stone, right? Uh, maybe a, a foundational stone. But his stone is not bigger than Abraham's, and it's not bigger than Isaac's, and it's not bigger than Jacob's or any of the patriarchs. His stone is sort of this supporting stone uh, to help, you know, level things out uh, that's put in place. And then the apostles are large stones on top of this other foundation, right? Mm. Uh, So that's an important thing. And it is a really, really strategic. I think it's a dig, right? I think it serves as a dig from Stephen to these Hebrew guys who are expecting, you know, uh, to, for, you know, to, for, they're probably expecting Stephen to cower, you know, when they bring in this accusation, right? Like passive aggressive, really immature people generally expect anybody to cower when they bring in some name, 
to yeah. to you. You know, you could be the pastor, you could be anybody, right? Some somebody's I talked to, you know, so and so, and when they get here, they're going to be really mad. You know, they they bring these names up, and if and if you if you uh, look past this to what's actually going on, and you identify a higher authority. This generally shuts up the whole argument, right? This mm-hmm. this just undercuts everything, uh, and uh, you you are able to move on to what the actual issue is, and that's what Stephen's wanting to do here. The Hebrew men, of course, they're out for blood. They're going to get their blood, uh, but not before they hear us. You know this I, this this fact that they're betraying Abraham, uh, and that's a really really uh, critical accusation from Stephen, and mm-hmm. it's accurate. Right. So he starts by putting Moses in his place and not in a not in a a, that sounds like a pejorative way of speaking, not putting him in his place like, hey, you're you're nothing, Moses, but putting Moses in the right Right. context. What's striking is he will spend a good chunk of this sermon talking about Moses and and talking about him in a not in a blasphemous way, but in that larger context of the full story of salvation. And so in order to do that, he has to start with with Abraham Abraham. and it it does strike me that even as he if he makes this as a dig of sorts, he still addresses them as brothers and fathers and speaks of Abraham as our father. So there is an appeal to them even at the same time. Yeah, and this, uh, you know, this is actually an interesting point. So, I think probably mainly two levels. So this is a, this is um, sort of a, a cultural greeting of the Hebrews to one another, especially people who uh, have this hereditary connection of being Hebrews, uh, brother, sister, mother, father. Um, this could also maybe be uh, an allusion to the fact that Stephen maybe had family members. Hmm. also who were wrapped up in this we know uh we we already know that stephen is a learned guy we know he knows his bible history we know he knows the connections uh between abraham isaac jacob moses aaron jesus he he has these connections um you know we could argue back and forth about where where these was this common knowledge did every hebrew you know every boy who was a hebrew were they able to see and know all the patriarchal history and all the ins and outs of the old Mm -hmm. testament my guess is going to be probably not um you know there's obviously some common information there's uh there's a good catechesis that goes on among israel um, but uh, I, I have a feeling that not every Israelite was able to recite the Old Testament lineages and the Old Testament promises and all of the details of the work of God through salvation history for Israel, uh, you know, with such eloquence and class, right, with such uh, acumen. So it makes me wonder, uh, you know, if Stephen's family, hmm. uh, it's to some degree is involved in this whole mess, too. You know, does he have family, brothers, uncles? you know, fathers, grandparents who are involved in the higher levels of the Jewish leadership, religious leadership could be, uh, I think probably more casually though, more accurately, this is probably just a common sort of greeting. Uh, he is, I think he is attempting to establish a basis, a commonality here. Um, I don't know if this is a commonality of simply of, uh, a commonality of faith or a commonality of the flesh, right? So this is a very, very, uh, important distinction that St. Paul brings up in right. later writings, uh, you know, uh, not all children of Abraham are Abraham are children according to the flesh, but according to the spirit and the faith, right? According to the spirit of promise. This is a very, very important distinction that St. Paul uses in the God in Romans. Um, and so uh, I think here, Stephen is probably identifying it in that way, right? The hereditary lineage, my brothers, according to the flesh, because at the end, when he finally wraps all this stuff up, after he finishes talking about Moses, 
he of course points out that it was us or in particular you people of the flesh who killed the christ uh and you know so now stephen is identifying that even though we are brothers according to flesh we are no longer brothers according to to the spirit right according to according to faith but he is he i think this uh, gets of course to even though he is digging at these people uh we generally dig at the people we care about the most right right we we generally are not passionate and we care less about people that we we care less about right and so uh this is uh, this emulates again i i keep bringing it up but the way saint paul yeah. talks about his desire for the hebrews to yeah. be saved right he talks adamantly and beautifully about how theirs is the patriarchs theirs is the lineage theirs is the tabernacle theirs is the temple according to the flesh theirs is the christ right he desires the hebrews to come to a saving knowledge in Jesus Christ, because they are God's chosen people according to the flesh. Right. They right. are. They are the children and the offspring of Abraham. They are the children of the circumcision. They are the ones that God carried out of Egypt for long centuries and 40 years. He's, they're the ones that have Canaan. Uh, all of these things are, I, get, I think, again, what Stephen is drawing on here, this hereditary lineage and this brotherhood, but this brotherhood moves us to faith in Christ because yeah. of it, not the killing of Christ, which again is the that's the final sort of strong statement that he brings up. So yeah, yeah, this is you can see Stephen's emotion. What I mean, and the the desire he's got to reach these people, to preach to these people the good news of Jesus. We're going to pick up more of the sermon on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking Acts seven with Pastor Sam Belts. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, May 10th. We're studying Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 16 with Pastor Sam Belts. He serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. Pastor Belts, prior to the break, we were talking about Stephen's sermon, the first part where he brings up Abraham. He starts strategically there to put Moses in the right context of the promise that God has made to Abraham. Talk a little bit about what parts of the Abraham narrative Stephen highlights. It looks like he particularly emphasizes the promise I mean, that makes sense. And then he brings up circumcision as well. Yeah. So he does, he does uh, spend a little bit of time too, just talking about the basic historical and geographical reality of God's movement of Abraham out of Mesopotamia to the land of the Chaldees, Haran and all these sorts of things. Uh, You know, uh, this uh, displays Abraham's faithfulness, right? The, the uh, uh, sovereignty of God, right? The predestination, the desire of God uh, in his immutable will to, make a people for himself and god is reaching into geography and time to get this accomplished in places like mesopotamia heron among uh, the among the people uh, in those areas and among uh, abraham in particular but then god uh, removes abraham from all these places and sticks him in a promised land right even though he has no child 
uh, God makes him a promise that he will have an offspring and a land, right? These are, uh, again, recounting the two major aspects of this singular promise that God makes uh, about a people and a land. Uh, and we often remember about the people, uh, the people who will be like sands on the seashore, finally, as Paul, you know, again, tells us the children of faith, but also the land, right? This is a very, very important, uh, this has been something that I've been focusing on a lot, uh, and land is a really, really important, and we, we learn this here in Stephen's speech about land. It's a very important aspect of the promise that the people of Israel never forget. Mm-hmm. And nor should we as Christians that land, the land, uh, and in particular, the land of Israel and the land of Jerusalem and the land that God gave in Canaan to, to Abraham is a major aspect of the promise for Israel and also for us, right? Uh, we we have to be reminded of Christians. You know, we are not anti-Semites. We do not look askew at the Hebrew people. We look to them as Stephen and as Paul look to them as, uh, even though we are not kindred in the flesh, the the people of Israel still to this day who maintain fidelity to the Old Testament scriptures are a people in search of a Messiah. And they are a people who we should care for and love all the more because they are very close to the kingdom of God. This is a regular descriptor uh, for a lot of the people of, of Israel that Jesus interacted with. Um, you know, leaders in the in the uh, you know Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, various other people who are top level thinkers and people in and among the leaders of Israel who are in search of the kingdom of God, uh, who who are close to the kingdom of God, who are near to the kingdom of God, as the gospel writers describe them. So land for these people and land for us are very, very important and a major part of the promise. And then uh, this circumcision, uh, you know, uh, this uh, this is always an interesting, <laughs> like, I, I uh, every time I think about the promise that God makes, uh, to Abraham. And then, uh, you know, it, it's always comical to me. You know, what a really, you know, what a really drive this home circumcision. Uh, what, uh, I don't, uh, I don't necessarily get it. This is a really interesting, uh, part of this, uh, you know, part of this promise that God makes, but it, it's uh, an external sign, right? Uh, you know, it's a private sign, but it is an external sign of the flesh that identifies a place, uh, right? It is, uh, it's, uh, not intended in the first place to be a cultural marker, which is a very important thing, mm. um, you know, for us to rem- be reminded of this is a religious and ceremonial marker. Mm. Uh, and it's a marker in the flesh, right? It's a serious mark. This is not a small mark. This is a serious mark. And it is, uh, meant to be again on the male member because it is meant to be a reminder of how this seed mm. promised would be Uh, would be brought forth into the world. You know, Uh, you know, we kind of tend to be prudish Western Midwestern folks. We don't like to talk about the birds and the bees and the nitty gritty aspects of how God was involved in the world, but he was involved in the world by and through the means uh, of bringing about children. And that is a very natural and important part of the promise. Uh, We see that, you know, we, we uh, have a real sort of antiseptic version of this in the uh, in the uh, incarnation of Jesus, right? We don't have to deal with the you know the nitty gritty of the sexual relationship between a man and a woman for the bringing about of Jesus, which makes everybody really happy to talk about the incarnation. But when we're talking about Abraham, we're talking about a really old guy that had to wait a really long time to have his very first baby, and his wife was super old, and and the circumcision piece and the promise of this that was attached to the circumcision was that this is how I will 
make my will and my promise come to fruition among you people is through this relationship between you and your wife, right? Mm -hmm. And this became, uh, of course, one of the major issues for Abraham and Sarah was that, uh, you know, this way of uh, getting to the promise wasn't working fast enough, so we have to get Hagar in there, right? Right. You know, stuff Hagar in the tent to make make this baby come about faster, and God sits in the heavens and laughs, and then he comes down to earth and laughs, and he laughs at Sarah, and he laughs at Abraham, and then he makes them wait even longer, right? And then she has to have a really old geriatric pregnancy, which makes every old person, whenever whenever any old woman in church hears the story of Sarah, they all start looking at each other and going, oh my gosh, can you believe it? She was 90 years old. Uh, I don't know what I would do with a newborn at 90. And that's right, you know, because... Abraham and Sarah have to live by a word of faith, right? Mm -hmm. They have to live by a promise from God. And so uh, Stephen is recounting all this, which for, for, for the Hebrew leaders would have been very fresh. You know, uh, the Hebrew leaders were not, uh, they were not prudish when it came down to the way that God had uh, instituted the promised seed to come to fruition in the Messiah. They were expecting that it was going to come through the natural ways that human progeny uh, came from one generation to another. They just weren't looking for it in Jesus. They were waiting for some other Davidic figure. They were waiting for this lineage to be fulfilled in a different way. But it came from Abraham. It came through Sarah. It came through the patriarchs, right? Isaac. Uh, and Jacob, and then to the 12 other patriarchs, right, as we're going to read about here in the next little bit. Well, let's pick up the text then in verse 9. That's where we left off. We've fast-forwarded the story. We've gotten through Abraham. He Stephen chooses primarily just to go through Isaac, Jacob, and then zoom in again on the 12 patriarchs, Acts 7, verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. That takes us through the end of our text. That's through verse 16. So, Pastor Belt, he, you know, Stephen, it strikes me that when we talk about God or when he's named in the New Testament, he's often identified as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Stephen's yes. talked about Abraham, but then he skips over Isaac and Jacob and really only mentions Jacob to talk about his son, Joseph. Why, why move to Joseph next? You know, I really... I don't have a good explanation for this. I think I have some theories because when we talk again, we've been talking about the lineage of the Christ, the hereditary lineage, and Joseph is not the man. He's not the guy through whom which the seed of the Christ is born. It's Judah. It's the older brother, uh, right? God had, again, predestined Judah to be the one, and Judah displayed repentance uh, for the sin that he had committed against Joseph, which are sort of these, uh, you know, culminating factors, it seems to be in, in the lineage going through Judah, but it's not Joseph, right? So that, that's one of the reasons why I don't, I don't in the first place, when you read this, Joseph is sort of a, a 
stumble stumbling block for me in this lineage. But but you don't hear anything about Judah in the story of salvation. You know, none of his great works really or anything other than the fact that the the Christ or the Messiah will come through his tribe, right? We don't we don't have extensive sections on his great work. We don't have extensive sections on his family, you know, great family life or whatever. He, he doesn't apparently minister to the people of Israel in any extensive way. It's Joseph who is the minister to Israel, uh, you know, and through, uh, you know, Egypt, which is this, uh, again, a really super interesting uh, aspect of this story. Now, I tend to think, uh, again, of of the Joseph figure almost as a precursor to Moses in a lot of ways. Um, Joseph's work in uh, managing Israel uh, in, and prior to that, just simply being a faithful, faithful guy, right? He was a, he was a child of promise, right? Him, he was the, he was the promise, this sort of promised child to the favored wife mm-hmm. of, uh, of Jacob, which does, you know, does have something to do with it, I think. But again, not the hereditary line through whom the Christ is going to come, mm-hmm. but, uh, almost as a foreshadowing to the person of Moses, who is the next figure that, uh, that Stephen brings up, Joseph is seen again as a primary image of faithfulness, right? Uh, primary, uh, his primary qualities are that God was was with him significantly. He was the favored child of Jacob. Uh, he had he had immense faith. God gave him the special gift of uh, interpretation of dreams, uh, which was his main, you know. Uh, vocation uh, in and among the people of uh, of Egypt for a time you know uh, we have that great story about the the dream and the seven cows fat cows and lean cows and the the good years and the bad years and then his ascension into the high ranks of Egypt even becoming the the chief you know the CEO of uh, all of Egypt right and then uh, even you know almost overtaking the the dynasty of the pharaohs and running the land um, and, uh, he is this sort of, uh, again, a front runner or a precursor to the way Moses would act for Israel, right? Not somebody through whom the, not, not somebody through whom the, the promised Christ's lineage is going to come, uh, not somebody who, uh, has any other really si- real significance to the story other than God worked through these secondary figures. Uh, and I say secondary again, because they're not the primary heritage of the Christ, but these secondary figures to be these caretakers, these ministers, these, uh, these faith, very faithful men who, uh, are preachers, uh, who, you know, in Joseph's case, I think there's a lot to be said that, uh, Joseph can even be a precursor to Stephen, uh, and Moses may be a precursor to Stephen too. You know, these sort of, uh, you know, Stephen's not an apostle, uh, he's not, you know, he's not been put in that office, but he is still this sort of secondary figure who preaches and proclaims, who cares for the church, who, you know, has this office, um, you know, alongside the primary, you know, trunk of the tree, if you want to call it that, the primary flow of God's salvation. Uh, he is ministering to it. He is caring for it. He is overseeing it. He is in charge of it. He, you know, looks at his brothers. I, I, I think, and when I say that, I think that's probably the primary reason why uh, Stephen brings up Joseph, uh, because Joseph is, he looks at his brothers, he uh, preaches to his brothers in a way, he catches his brothers, 
and his brothers are repentant. I think there's a lot of, this is really heavy with what Stephen wants for the people that he's talking to. He wants the people that he is talking to, his brothers, his Hebrew brothers, mm-hmm. his people who are of the lineage of these of these patriarchs. He wants them to do what the brothers of Joseph did. He doesn't want them to walk back right to the land and die. He wants them to come into the care of Joseph, right? Uh, you know, this sort of a, a overlapping here. But I, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna guess as to why Stephen uses Joseph and doesn't use Judah, it has more to do with Stephen's and I'll say it pastoral care or at mm. least hereditary care for the people that he's talking to. Uh, to come in to the care of the gospel, right, or to come into the care of the church, uh, the way that the murderous or attempted murdering brothers of Joseph, once in the hardness of hearts, threw him into a pit, it turns out he was alive. Uh, The way that these Israelites are going to throw Jesus into the pit, turns out he's alive, and Joseph there stands as a sign and a signal, you know, even though it's not a resurrection, there's some definite resurrection themes um, as to this repentance on behalf of the brothers, again, in particular, Judah, for what had been, for what had happened. And then uh, this uh, reunification and reconciliation of the patriarchs uh, in Egypt, uh, you know, we, we get a really great detail. There's 75 of them total. You know, uh, we, uh, you know, I can't remember if we learn now that I'm thinking about it off the top of my head. I don't think it ever talks about Joseph ever having a family, uh, a husband or not a husband, a wife uh, and children uh, in Egypt. I can't remember now. Well, he uh, has the he has the two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Jacob blesses and they end up becoming the two of the tribes. They take they get the double portion. That's right. Yep. 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 You're exactly right. And so uh, we have this. we have this great reconciliation, hmm. right, with uh, the people of Israel, the patriarchs, Joseph, Joseph's family, their families, everybody's coming together in Egypt. And now for the next 400 years, uh, 425 years, they're going to be, you know, mixing it up. They're going to be, uh, you know, continuing their work to, you know, increase the people of Israel yeah. and bring about the promised seed uh, you know, uh, for the later Messiah. So, mm. yeah, I, I, I think, I think you're onto something with what you're saying there about the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. And I, you put it in a more positive way than I was thinking about it. And I appreciate that because I, I do think that with, with Joseph focusing on his narrative, that is where the narrative of Genesis focuses too, is on what happens with Joseph. And so that's the material Stephen's got to work with. But in particular, this matter of Joseph being one whom God is going to use to serve his people, but the people of God initially reject Joseph. I mean, that that stands in the line of that Stephen is, is putting out here. You know, you've got Joseph. It's going to happen to Moses, too. And ultimately, Jesus is the one that the brothers have rejected. And so I think that that Joseph fits in that line. But I appreciate the way that that you're saying it, that with Joseph's brothers and when you look at how it plays out there in Genesis, that they do end up serving as this example of repentance that they, they come back around, the, the Lord brings them to repentance and they, they reunite with their brother, they're reconciled with their brother, even after their father Jacob dies. And so that, yep. that positive example, I, I think is, is helpful. I think that, I mean, the, the connection that I make with the patriarchs and the people or the Sanhedrin is in that word that they're jealous of Joseph. The last time that the Sanhedrin brought 
the apostles before them, it was because of the jealousy that they had. Right. It's the same thing. And so I, I think that that, I mean, Joseph makes sense from that perspective. But again, I, I like the way that you've, you've set it up, that the brothers, the patriarchs end up being that positive example of repentance, which is what Stephen actually wants for the people listening to him. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, he, he, we, we already talked about it, you know, when he addresses them as brothers, you know, this is probably mostly just based on the, their, uh, their connection in uh, the flesh could be familial connections, but his desire clearly is to work in and among the people of Israel. He wants to be around them. He wants to preach and proclaim to them. He wants to drag them into the kingdom of God. If it is the will of God, He'll do everything he can, even up until the point of death, to bring this about, right? He's been, he has been, you know, this, again, this is why he argues with them incessantly prior to his arrest. He, he is frustrating these men because he is so adamant about the person and work of Jesus and proclaiming the name of Jesus in and among the Jews, especially in the temple, that they're just annoyed, right? They're just annoyed with him. And they, they again, they, they are convinced the only way to shut him up is to kill him. This is what they're finally going to do, right? The only way to get this guy to shut up uh, is to is to stone him to death. Um, you know, we don't have the section, but I always get asked, uh, you know, when I when I've been teaching on this, if the if the Hebrews had the authority to stone Stephen in this situation, why didn't they use this, uh, you know, to, as leverage with Jesus? Why did Jesus' death? end up the way it did having to go through Rome, you know, and why could the Jews now, why could they kill Stephen, you know, by stoning him, you know, uh, right there. And it was justifiable, uh, you know, I, and I always uh, sort of struggle with that answer other than, uh, you know, kind of going into, well, that's the way God wanted it. Uh, you know, you, this is like the, the, you know, the, the, the Jesus answer in Sunday school, God wants what he gets. So, you know, uh, you know, there isn't uh, like, we're not probably talking about a whole lot of time between Jesus and Stephen. I mean, when you talk about the, the context of the length of time, uh, you know, uh, it, it, and I don't know if you have any theories about the time frame between, ascension of jesus the death and resurrection ascension of jesus pentecost and now the the days of stephen but sometimes the way it's written it's it's very quick you know it's within mm -hmm. weeks uh of the pentecost event that stephen is getting killed and then other times i read it i think well maybe it's a few months afterwards right but whether it's a few weeks or a few months the the connection between how stephen's pre- death trial was conducted with false witnesses and false accusations and uh, the frustrating nature of his continued uh, belligerent uh, arguments against the the Hebrews, you know, or, and, and not necessarily against the Hebrews, but ag against their treatment of Jesus, against their uh, hardness of heart. They are, he's wrapping it all up here. Again, he's, he's hammering them with Abraham. He's hammering them with Joseph. He's hammering them in a good way, right? He's mm. hammering them out of his care and love. Again, you hammer on the people you love the most. Uh, you you do everything you can to get them to trust and believe and change and turn because you want what's good for them. And Stephen knows that the greatest good that God has given to the people of Israel is the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, he knows because he's probably experienced the repentance of Easter which all of the disciples came to when they realized that the man that they had been following, who they turned their backs on to various degrees, denied and walked away from on at Golgotha, that he when he was resurrected, uh, they found out that he was indeed the, the Christ, the Messiah. They found out that he is the promised seed of Abraham, 
It was proclaimed to them by angels, by apostles, by everybody that saw it. And they, too, had to come in through the same repentance and faith that uh, that Stephen is now desiring for these other men uh, in this cadre of, of Jewish leaders to come into. He wants them to hear and believe. Uh, the difficulty for us, as you'll probably take up later, is that they will not. Right? They, right. they simply will not. They will not have it. Not that they could not, not that they, they would not. They will not do it. It is against their wills to believe right now in Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's ultimately what's going to doom Stephen. Mm, right. I mean, it, the, it seems like in multiple spots here, Stephen is setting himself up to proclaim all the good news in Jesus that he gets killed before he has the chance to fully proclaim because of the hardness of heart. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, yep. especially like right here at the end of our section where he talks about the fact that Jacob and the fathers had their bones carried back to the land of Israel. I mean, that, that proclamation is like, it's waiting for the proclamation of the resurrection that happens in yep. Jesus. Stephen yep. doesn't get to proclaim it because he's stoned first and they won't believe. But I mean, it's just, it's one of those examples where I think Stephen is, is just being a master preacher here led by the Holy spirit. We got about two minutes here, Pastor Belts, to wrap things up this morning. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, Stephen does prove, so Stephen, Stephen puts a lot of New Testament preachers to shame like us That's right. who don't know our Old Testament well enough, right? Like, I already feel like an idiot because I forgot Ephraim and Manasseh. So, <laughs> like, we need to know our Old Testament a lot better. And, uh, you know, uh, like we can be really foolish as as Americans, uh, you know, and, uh, and as preachers in different places. You're in Texas. I'm in Iowa that uh, we won't you know, oh, I'm never going to run into a Hebrew person. Right. I'm never going to run into somebody who, uh, you know, who uh, is going to maybe have a accurate and good accounting of the Old Testament promises. We really do a disservice to the proclamation of the gospel and believing that the only people that are ever going to hear us preach are the only people that we're ever going to interact with are going to be gentile you know midwestern folks too right like there are a lot of hebrew people that exist in this world there are a lot of hebrew people that are very well versed in the old testament there are a lot of hebrew people that we could interact with that if we had the wherewithal as as american readers and and inheritors of the scriptures and the christian faith to learn and know our old testament so that we could be as frustratingly annoying to the hebrews as stephen was in the proclamation of jesus not just starting with the gospel accounts, but starting with Abraham, starting with the full weight of God's plan of salvation, even beginning with Adam and knowing the details and the account, you know, piece by piece of where God had worked through time to bring about the salvation of the world, finally culminating in Jesus. We do a disservice to our proclamation of the gospel that we don't have this better in hand. And and uh, not simply for our proclamation of the gospel, but simply for our consolation, too. Hmm. Right. Uh, this is the great proclamation that Paul makes in Romans about how in God's majesty and glory, he broke off branches of Israel and grafted in wild branches of the Gentiles, right? We are the wild branches who are grafted in. Uh, this doesn't start with us and this doesn't end with us. This informs our decision-making when it comes to church, right? You know, uh, I'm going to get, I'm going to drop the bombshell of contemporary worship, right? Like when we start fiddling around with the ancient things of the church and the ancient things that the Hebrews did, right? Our divine services are not simply frivolous things that we, that we shook out of a Cracker Jack box. We use the Psalms. We use the Sanctus. We use the deep, rich things of Israel in the proclamation and the presentation of God's historic longevity work 
to bring about salvation, which didn't begin with us, right? It did not begin with 21st century white people in North America. It began with the people of Israel and Abraham. It began with Adam and Eve. It began in Mesopotamia, if you want to consider that the cradle of civilization, which Stephen, I think Stephen is kind of pointing at this with Abraham and Mesopotamia, right? It began in that place, and we cannot just stand over these things and wipe it away uh, as if it is some frivolous thing that we should not conserve into a new millennia. We should definitely conserve this stuff, and we shouldn't overlook it. Stephen puts us to shame with this, right? Stephen really puts us to shame. He he draws a really—he he puts a bright light on, on the ignorance that we have of Old Testament stuff and, and the fact that we don't cherish it as modern in, inheritors of the Scriptures and of the Christian faith. Israel is a very important part of Christianity. It's a very, very important part. I can't say it enough. Pastor Sam Belts is pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa, helping us today with Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. Pastor Belts, thanks for being our guest today. You are welcome. It was a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 7, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.